Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a Startup Grind. Hey there and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we are going to do something a bit different and feature content from the FutureCast Thought Leadership Series, which is a collaboration between the AT&T Foundry and Ericsson. The featured guest of the event is Young Guru, who is an esteemed audio engineer, DJ, and producer on more than 10 of Jay-Z's albums, including his hit track, Empire State of Mind. Young Guru takes the audience on an exploration of technology, content creation, and the democratization of content. Andrew Keen is the moderator of the discussion and executive director of the FutureCast series. Author of popular books like The Cult of the Amateur and The Internet is Not the Answer, Keen was named one of GQ's 100 Most Connected Men in 2015. Directly prior to the discussion you are about to hear, several music industry-related products were demoed to the audience. We'll hear a bit about those products from their founders starting around halfway into the interview. Running an hour and 20 minutes, this episode is a bit longer than our normal ones, but is definitely worth it. It's a true deep dive into the music industry and how new disruptive digital technologies are shaping it for better or for worse. Let's listen in to Young Guru, interviewed in February by moderator Andrew Keen at the AT&T Foundry in Palo Alto. So uh, Young Guru and I were talking uh, beforehand, told me a little bit of his life story, got into this business in the, what, in the mid-90s? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you were at uh, Howard University, didn't graduate, but you involved in music and technology. And in, in some ways, the rest is history. So a couple of simple questions to begin with. Mm-hmm. Firstly, you, you talk about this thing called the era of the engineer. What does that mean? And secondly, you know, 20 years, 15, 20 years after you began in this business, mm-hmm. where are we? Uh, first of all, era of the engineer. That was something that myself, my manager came up with uh, because we live in this era now of hashtags and all these things that we're trying to make cool. So the whole purpose of that was to focus on engineers and not just music engineers. It started off with music engineers, but it, it sort of became this big thing that includes all engineers. And it's trying to make engineering cool. When I first started, it wasn't cool to be a music engineer and it also wasn't a glamorous job. It wasn't something that got you sort of uh, prominence or people knew your name or wasn't that sort of thing. Uh, and also the, the type of communities that I'm from, the things that are cool are what kids go for. So in what essence, kind of community are you from? meaning lesser developed communities, uh, uh, places where basketball or music is looked at as the only thing that can get you out, sports or, or music, and not being preached to, but also just making it cool to focus on engineering, to focus on design so that kids understand that someone has to design everything that we use. If you can focus your attention to that and take it away from some of the nonsense that we have on social media, it's a great thing. So everything develops under this hashtag of air of the engineer. And we have this saying where everything has been engineered and we can prove it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's getting kids into design and, and figuring out um, different ways for them to be interested in engineering, be that designing software, designing musical instruments, designing whatever they want to design. You know. How did you get into being an engineer? Or, and, and you um, use these words interchangeably, design and engineering, are they the same thing? Absolutely, yeah, an engineer is designing something. 
for me, it, it came from necessity. When I was young, I got into systems. I got into fixing people's bikes or fixing people's VCRs, and that was interesting to me. My so father you were like a the, geek? Yeah, I'm a proud geek, very proud, very cool geek. Um, I don't think... I don't think the word geek is a negative thing. To me, that's a really positive thing. And I had parents that allowed me to wear that uh, outside to my friends. A lot of geeks want to go outside and not claim geek. And I was the kid that was outside. Yeah, I was hanging out at 10, 11 o'clock at night on the street corner, but I had a book in my hand. And I was very proud of, I'm reading this, and I know something that you don't know. Uh, so again, it, it transferred into me doing music and feeling disrespected How when I was in the studio. How did people respond to that? You weren't cool at that time, right? No, I was very cool. I've always been cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've always been cool. Yeah. Uh, but you made it cool. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point, is that I made it cool. So I have this theory that if you do something with bravado, if you do, and I don't mean in a negative sense, I did this experiment when I was in college, and I told all my friends, we're going to wear this particular Kango hat for a week. And I, and I knew it was going to happen. I said, if we all walk around and wear this Kango, Everybody else on campus is going to go buy these hats because they're going to think that they're cool. And the exact thing that I said was going to happen happened. We created a style. It shows you the power of, of creating um, styles and that all it is is that people agree to follow the leader. That's all it is, is people agree on something. But you've got to have some skills as a designer and engineer. It's not just having a Twitter following. You've got to know what you're doing. Oh, right? absolutely. So that's the other thing is that I'm, I, I read nonstop. And back then, research Favorite was writers, by the way? Oh, man, that's so hard. Three or right, four. Right now, Jerry Lanier is my favorite writer. Uh, there, just he's because in Berkeley. Of his, yeah, just because of his challenge of, 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 of tech and where we're going and, and his idea of not being in this lock-in code. But a lot of times, there's people who write on subjects that they have no idea about, or there's a, an essence of him being here in this area when, when the real business was going down of creating this that we live in now. I'd rather get the experience from someone who said, this was our intention, these were our mistakes after I analyze it, and here's how we can fix it. So I'm really into Jared Lanier at this point. He's probably my... And him the and Michio Kaku. Uh, the, the author of uh, Who Owns the Future. Absolutely. Him, Michio Kaku, was also a favorite of mine just because physics is a hobby that I love, and Michio makes it fun instead of being very stiff, and uh, he, he's, he's humorous. So I like Michio's his delivery. Uh, it's really, really good for um, introducing people to physics. So Duran is a pessimist, though. He doesn't seem to think that the era of the engineer, as you put it, has yeah. been very successful. Um, to a certain degree, because he had a very specific way that he thought it was going to pan out, didn't pan out that way, or yeah. when your intentions are good and then the thing that you create is not the intent, you can sometimes get pessimistic. But coming from struggle your whole life, you sort of understand that when something isn't the way that you want it to be, you have to change it to what you want it to be. Or an engineer perks up when there's a problem because, hey, I get to design something that fixes the problem. So for me, seeing something that's not correct allows me to correct it. So I don't share his pessimism. I don't share, I, I also, I ultimately have this thing where I think human beings, we will get to the Star Trek point where money doesn't matter, where ego doesn't matter, where religion doesn't matter. None of that stuff is going to matter. But that's someone looking at time in 100, 200, 300 year blocks. So where are we? Younger, are we? We're in a we, transition. We've, yeah, but yeah. everyone always says that, we're in a transition. Yeah. We're always in a transition. Well, we're I not mean, always in a transition. Sometimes we're locked what's in. What's happened over the last 20 years in terms of the industry you know, the, 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 the professional industry of creativity, mm -hmm. of the production of music and movies and photography? 
Uh, we have the internet, things have been digitized, right. and this is all stuff that people know. But what does that mean? What that means is that now we have access to everything, and that people that want to be content creators can be that from the smallest little kid to the most experienced filmmaker. And now this most experienced filmmaker has to deal with the attention that this little cat is getting on Instagram, right? <laughs> he has to deal with that. So a lot of people from, I can take it from movies to music, when it was, um, you had to work to sit at the cool table. When we were coming up in the music business, there was an access that everyone didn't have. You had to either save up money, you had to either sign a deal, because you couldn't afford to just pay to go in a studio, let alone could you pay for a million duplications of something and send it out. Now, the things that we studied for so long, and we were considered experts at that particular thing, can now be absorbed by a high school kid in a week and he has access to all those things. So it makes the person that studied their whole life to be that feel as though, I'm, what's my worth at what this point? What does that mean though? You, you wouldn't acknowledge it, but you're mm -hmm. clearly a guy with talent. What does that mean for the person of talent, 1995 versus today? You had talent in the mid 90s, you made it as a professional engineer. Here's what, the thing. What is the equivalent of a, let's call him a young, young guru mm -hmm. in, in 2016? What do they do today? they have to first realize that there's absolutely no way that they can have my career. No? No. <laughs> Nor should they want to. But they'd love it. Who wouldn't want to be Young Guru? Yeah, but, but that's in an era where we had distinct superstars and we had, uh, it was driven by guys or girls, you know, when I say guys, I mean everyone. It was driven by people that were behind this velvet rope or that were at the cool table. Now, kids are making their own cool tables and they don't care about your cool table at all at all. And there's no, uh, we, all of our taste. Why don't they care? There are still stars, Because there's there? There still stars, but we don't, we have stars now that are on local levels. So there's gonna be less and less, there's only one Adele. She's the only person that has done it this year that says, okay, I'm just universally accepted and I sell these many records my first week. But she's bigger than ever. She's yeah. bigger than anyone. Everybody else is going to have to deal with the fact that there are pockets of people that are very interesting, but they may not be as famous. You're not going to sell a million records, but you can make a great living and have a huge career with your pockets. It's just not going to be... I'm going to sell 10 million albums. You don't need to sell 10 million albums anymore. And there's so many other avenues opened up to you that once you become semi-famous, that depending on how you move inside of your uh, particular, say you make music or say film or whatever it is, you have to figure out different ways and different revenue streams. But a guy like you, you, mm -hmm. you, know, you made your name, you, know, you produce records with people like Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. What happens now to the guy who has talent? like yourself, a younger version of yourself. How are they gonna make their money? Their he name? has to work hard now. This is what people need to realize, that your talent doesn't mean anything until you get it out. You understand? I've, I, I, could, I could take you to where I live in New Jersey, and we can go Where do you it. live in New Jersey? I live in North New Jersey. We can go on an average basketball court outside, and I could find you five guys that could play against five guys in the NBA right now. You that, could? Yeah, absolutely. So talent's meaningless? No, it's not meaningless. It's the, it's the necessary core. What you have to realize now is that can that guy that's on the street corner deal with the rest of the stuff that comes along with playing in the NBA? Does he know how to deal with managers? Can he manage money? Can he deal with the groupies? Can he deal with travel? Can he produce at that level inside of the structure of the NBA? If you get my analogy, his talent by itself will not make him successful. So the day of I'm a musician, some A&R comes and sees my band at some local uh, pub, and makes me this superstar is gone. 
Now you have to get online and make yourself aware to that A&R person. The A&R is not coming in going, okay, I like this band, let's sign them. He's looking online to say, what band in that area is gaining the most attention? You're not gaining any attention, why would he sign you? Explain that in technological terms. Is that Napster, YouTube, Spotify? What's the narrative? What, is, what has no, changed? Those, those, those people, what they really did was show us that we're not selling a physical thing. For so you mean a CD? Absolutely. And or a record? Or a record. The music business for so long was based off of selling these physical things. And I'm not selling that anymore. What we really concentrate on now is the content inside. The CD is a piece of plastic. What am I really selling? I'm selling a vibration. I'm selling sound moving. We got guys here selling vibrations. We can get to them later. Right. <laughs> you, do you understand what I mean? It, it no, I don't. You... What do you mean, selling a vibration? Okay, sound is a vibration. Sounds vib rather vulgar. Sound is a vibration. <laughs> All sound is vibration. All life is vibration. Without vibration, there's no life. It's just that we consider the ones that's from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz as audible. And then when you organize that sound, it becomes music. But why is that different? in 2016 from 1996? Because the way in which you could receive that was only through some sort of medium before the internet, before we could digitize things. I had to either put this on a piece of wax or I had to put this on a cassette tape or if you're old enough, an A-track tape. Uh, and then we figured out a way in which to digitize this. We made it zeros and ones so that now it's transferable. We all know that story. Once I can digitize something, I can send it in. Anyway. So you stream something. What's the difference? You, put it, you sell it on Spotify or you sell it on CD or on vinyl? What's because the what? person that bought the CD valued the CD. And the person was willing to pay however much. At one point, we were selling $18 CDs, right? And that's when the music was. Was that a scam? To me, it was. To me, it was. It was the, Whether you made some money out of it. We did, but the music business was drunk. We were at this, we were at this complete high, and we were just making the and prices. you guys didn't know it at the time? I knew it, but it's very hard to change this big ocean liner when you're just one person yelling. I had a meeting uh, when we were at Def Jam, and there was a, a meeting where we had the whole company there, and we were allowed to ask questions to all of our superiors. And I, I very easily raised my hand, and I said, how are we going to sell music when music is free? It was a That's question. a great, write that one down. How are you going to sell music when music is free? It was a question that, that people... Socrates could have come up with that yeah, one, people, right? didn't, people didn't understand what How I was saying. How can you sell something when it's free? Right. People didn't understand what I meant at that given what moment. What did you mean? What I meant was I, I saw very fast where we were going. And when our business had the Napsters and those things come, we didn't behave the way tech companies behave. I looked at tech companies, and when someone develops something that's really, really good, and a big fish sees this little fish, they just buy them, right? That's, that's, the, that's the nature of the business. Us as the music business, instead of just buying Napster, we fought against them. And knowing something about computers, I was like, okay, let's say we take down Napster. What's to stop this guy from starting a whole other website tomorrow under a different name and just transferring everything? Kazaa like, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can't stop me from sending you an email. It's the only right. way you could, if you can stop me from sending you an email, that's the only way that you can stop piracy. You don't fight the pirate. What you do is you look at the hole that the pirate is, is exposing that you yourself are not filling. The pirate is only good because he's filling a hole that you're not doing. So instead of fighting him, buy him. That's it. That's, that's, that's how simple. That's how you solve that problem. How do you buy a pirate? Well, you, buy the, you, you buy the problem or you solve the problem of what he's doing. So who solved this problem? No one solved the complete problem yet. But 
what we see is what the taste of what people are going to be. We see that streaming is the new way. So people are like, okay, I don't want to hold this physical thing. I don't want it to take up gigs on my phone. I don't want it to take up gigs on my computer. I can stream whatever I want, right? So how do we compensate artists for the streaming? That's where we are now, is that we're figuring out how to properly compensate artists for however many streams that they get on each of these services. That's, that's the problem. But it's not, a, it's not an unsolvable problem. But it sounds unsolvable. If music's free, or movies are free, or TV's free, or, photog mm -hmm. or photographs are free, how does the artist get compensated in this, this age of the engineer, of ubiquitous technology? Okay, let's, say, let's take music, for example. There should be a certain amount of money that I receive for the number of streams that I get per month or per year. However like you, Spotify. Yeah, however you want to break it down. If I'm not, there shouldn't be uh, this thing where everyone's equal because everyone's not getting an equal amount of streams. So there should be some set price. When we do that in economics, we set a price for something. This is the price for oil. This is the price for this. This is the price for that. And we set how, what the value, all, all value is. Who is, determines is, this? We do. We we, yeah, you we the as a professional people. community, or we, yeah, as we, as a, we as a we as a people, we as a professional community, and all that is is, do you agree with that? Gold, the price is set for gold because we agree to it. If we didn't see gold as the as something that we value, if we didn't value gold, if gold was sand, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. It's it's all up here that we put that value on gold, and we're willing to pay that price. Do we care enough about creativity in the age of the engineer? Oh, absolutely. There's more music consumption now than there's ever been. But it's people the are paying thing less. In the world. I mean, the, 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 you know, you know this better than I do. I mean, the the revenue of the global recording music industry has been cut in half since 1999. Absolutely. So let's kill the, let's kill that industry. And that's Why not a it, bad thing. No, it's not. We create something else. Let's create something else. Let's create. That's what we do. We create things. So let's create something totally different. Why, does it ha Why are we still trying to save that ship? Let that ship go. If I made eight track recorders, they're done. Sorry. You have to move to something else. People but what are we moving to? That. Give me some. Streaming. We, let, let's, let's take streaming. Let's, let's take streaming, for example. What, Spotify? It, I don't care what the name is. Because who says that that has to be the next great thing? Who says that some kid is not sitting at home creating something right now that's going to blow all of them out of the water? But he's using this as an idea to see where they're missing certain things and what his generation wants. Maybe my, my daughter and my sons, they, my daughter asked me, why do people... How old are your kids? I have a 19-year-old, a 16-year-old. And two, one's in fashion? Two 12 and one's in music, right? Well, they all like music, but my oldest, she likes the business of fashion. She's not really a fashion designer. She wants to buy and sell. Uh, my 16-year-old is more into the design. Um, but looking at their generation, they could care less. My daughter asked me, she's very, you know, earth conscious, why do they even make CDs anymore? It's a waste of plastic. To her, it's a waste of plastic. They really have the idea that it's the music and not the piece of plastic, not the delivery system. By the way, when it comes to 3D printing, mm -hmm. isn't the fashion industry about to have its Naps the moment. There definitely are not just the not just the fashion industry. And explain all, why. I mean, all industries are about to have that moment because you can't protect the IP anymore. No, because of the fact that okay, when I get to the point where I can print whatever I want, and instead of me going out and buying the new Jordan, the new thing is going to be oh, my friends cracked Nike's server, and we have the design for the new Jordan, and we're just going to print that. That's going to be the new way of someone saying, hey, I just downloaded Rihanna's album. Well, what does album. Jordan think about that? <laughs> What does Rihanna or Jordan think about that? Obviously, they're going to try to protect whatever it is that they do. But aren't they the ones creating the value? Yes. 
Or you? Yes, they are. How are you going to get paid? Or how is young, young guru going to get paid? I'll tell you now that I make more money now in this age than I ever made by doing one particular album. Why? Because what I do now and the music that I make is spread out to the rest of the world where I only had a very specific type of consumer when I was pressing CDs. So now I have, and I don't have this middleman in between me and my consumer. I'm going directly to that consumer. Are the labels as bad as everyone says? Yeah. Guys in, in lim <laughs> guys in limousines taking drugs? Well, it's not about the drugs. I could care less what you do in your personal life. I'm talking about the contracts and the way that things are set they up. They have no value, the guys in the limousines? No, they do. They do to a certain extent. But me as an artist, when I signed a, a regular deal, let's say this was, was 1990 and I signed a deal, I was making seven cents off of every album. Whereas now, if I put that out... And seven I'm, percent, that is. Yeah, I'm saying seven percent. Was six, that fair that you absolutely created seven percent of the value? No, was the I created the entire value. <laughs> and, and they I, took 93%. Yes, absolutely, because they were my bank. They being the label. Yes, the label was my bank. I, as I said before, I didn't have the money to duplicate this or to put this process, uh, to start this process. So I needed that loan. But there's no bank in the world that gives you that type of loan <laughs> that says, okay, you only get this well, amount. Why you a bit of a schmuck to do it? No, people want to be famous. And, and people will take that hit in order to become famous, and then you can sort of get out of that contract and do it on your own. But that wasn't the setup of what people were doing. People were actually understanding that in order for me to be famous, I have to go through this route. So you have to be entrepreneurial. You have to take risks. You weren't willing to take risks when you were young, but you are now. No, it wasn't set up for me to do that. But the I mean, access, the se access. 7% is, is safe. But if you want the 100%... How was you, I going to record the album back then when right, there was but, no home but studio? But to do the 100%, you've got you to take risks. You've got to find the artist. You've got oh, yeah. oh, yeah, to invest absolutely. in the artist. Yeah, you've got to become the record label. Now, that's the flip side of it, that I preach this independence all the time. And then artists say, oh, yeah, I want to be independent. But they don't realize what that means. And they don't realize all the work that the record label was actually doing. But here's the job creation. You create this, and, and instead of getting your friends to do it, you actually go out and get the best people in that area to go do whatever it is that you and want to do. And we have the, I mean, we're here, Ericsson and AT&T. these guys producing the technology to free you, to liberate you? All and the, the technology time. companies, are they your friends? To me, yes, all the time. There's a relationship that I have there where I say, hey, I want this. I want to be able to do this. And then the person produces that. And then not only do they do that, in, in, in beyond just beta testing, when the product comes out and I say, hey, I want you to fix this, this, and this. This can be easier. This new thing came out that's important, and now I need this. So we have this relationship where we go back and forth, and I'm explaining to them what I need. That person, in, in turn, designs something and gives it back to me. And sometimes their design allows me to produce things that my mind never, would have never thought of. Or sometimes I'm wishing that I could do something, and it's vice versa. We have a, a really great relationship. But the technology itself drives what we're doing. So the, in terms of this age of the entrepreneur, the real revolution is in the technology. Yeah. It's empowering guys like you. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you asked that question earlier as if to like people were willing to become slaves, yeah, because they did not have the power to do it themselves. Or we watched guys like uh, a Robert Townsend, you know, use credit cards to make a movie where it was like, yo, I, I can't go through all of that. Now I can have the 5D and the 7D and, and it's all on my talent. It's completely on my talent. That piece of technology does not replace you learning movie making and good storytelling. The same way that just because someone can walk to Guitar Center and buy whatever program that they like does not mean that they're a musician or that they should be making music.
It's just that we have the access to it now. We don't have to bow down to record labels in order to create an album. I know you're making a movie about talent. Is this the yeah. best time, perhaps in history, to have talent? Because you're born with talent, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, no, no, you, you're born with it, but you develop it. You develop it. The people that you can, you, you, can, you can be talented all you want, but if you don't develop that, the person who has way smaller talent and works harder than you is going to be way better than you. Just natural talent alone is not enough. There's very rare people that are just, nat they don't work at their craft, they're just naturally that good. It's very, very rare. Examples? I don't know if I have any examples. Of Your heroes, that you mentioned them earlier. Guys, uh, you just have it. Yeah, but my heroes worked. My heroes worked. I, I, you know, if, you, if you're talking about music, you know, people like Bob Marley and people like that are like my musical heroes. But wasn't Marley born with talent or he developed it? He, de he absolutely developed it. Absolutely developed it. Uh, Quincy Jones, probably my biggest influence in terms of music. And a combination of Quincy Jones, a combination of creativity and technology. Quincy Jones is one of those people that you can look at that has developed himself over the years and also stayed on the edge of what technology allows him to do. So you're talking about a guy who's going from the big band era and running around, you know, playing with all the jazz greats that understands where we're going and can, let's say, okay, biggest albums, Michael Jackson's two best albums, right? We have Thriller, we have Off the Wall. This guy moves from, I, you have plenty of people who we told that that's all they did was play big band. And this guy moved from that to Michael Jackson to, okay, I'm at a party and I see this little funny guy named Will Smith, we're gonna make Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Great, let's do that. You know, I just came off of scoring The Wiz and all this other stuff. Then I'm gonna conquer magazines and we're gonna make Vibe Magazine and I'm gonna be the best at that. And we're gonna just keep moving and moving and moving. That's why I love Quincy Jones. Reinvention. Re absolutely. And that's your advice? There's some young people here? Reinvent? Yeah, I've had to reinvent. Take nothing for granted? Because of the fact that we're not, we're never gonna be in that thing again where, hey, I work at Ford and I'm gonna retire 50 years from now working at Ford, that's not gonna happen. People are gonna have to keep moving jobs and moving around and you may have to start all over in your 40s. I had to start all over again in, in I was very drunk in, in, in my success of, of what my business was and then the whole bottom was taken when out was of the business. When was that? 2008, 2008 was probably when the, when the, when the, the, what the happened ceiling then? hit. MP3s. And the average person understanding that they can then go download an MP3 and not buy an album. That's when we saw the album sales just go completely down. 2008-ish was, was around. So how time. did you reinvent yourself? Started spreading out and doing a lot of different things. I was a DJ and I started off as a DJ. But from once I got into engineering, you had a 15-year run of me being in a studio every day. So then around 2010, I go back into DJing. That DJing is taking me around the world. As I'm going around the world, I get to experience what real life is like in all these different places. And, and again, I'm looking at where the holes are. Then I'm understanding that people need content and people need to understand. People need content. Remember that. Yeah. People need content. The biggest questions that they I would. Do, yeah, they do, don't they? They absolutely. Do they, they get they it on Instagram? Do they get it on YouTube? Do they get it on Twitter and Facebook? They absolutely Or do, do. they need gurus like you? They, well, what we need are filters. You can get the content anywhere. And by a filter, what I mean is that before the advent of the internet, we had filters. We had a radio station. We had the guys, you know, we had the, the, the A&R guys, we called, right? What we call, but in every format, what we call tastemakers. If the guy at the radio station is picking the records that he wants to play, by listening to that radio station, we are being aggregated by that guy, right? We, we, 
He's being the filter. He's listening to all this music, and then he's saying, this is the good stuff, and we rely on his taste. The problem with the YouTubes and the Twitters, there's no filters. We don't have a general place where is we all go Is that the problem, or is that something to be celebrated? We don't have the filters. We don't have the guys on... No, it's not, it's, it's, not about, it's not about Madison Avenue. It's not about whether or not we should celebrate it or hate it. What it is, is it's, it's the nature of the beast. So at a certain point, there's so much information that it becomes overwhelming, and you also don't know who to trust on what information. So I could show you videos, I could show you whatever on YouTube that are completely wrong with their information. But if you have someone that you trust and someone that you, not even trust, you like their taste, I want you to introduce me to something new. That's sort of the problem with, with uh, the music search engines and all. If, by looking at, if I look at your iPod or if I look at your telephone and I say, and I write a program that says, okay, you have all of this type of music on there. I'm going to predict the type of music that you like. All you're doing is really taking what I like and saying these people relate to this. That's not discovery. That's you just saying you like hip hop, so I'm going to play you some hip hop music. No, discovery is when you play me something that's, completely out of my realm, and I go, wow, I like that. The hip-hop I was going to discover anyway, on my own. But is that a technology question, or is that a human question? Technology designed by humans. Di and I'm going to bring some more people in. Diomedes, you're, a, you're an Ericsson guy. Uh, what do we need from the backbone companies? Ericsson are already providing all the, the cell phone coverage. They're the ones enabling a lot of this amazing technology. Yeah. What are we still waiting for? Do we have enough broadband? Uh, we could never have enough broadband. <laughs> because of the fact that we still... Why? What do you mean we never have enough? We, 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 right now, we're still using MP3s. What I would like to see What is, do you mean MP3s? You mean that... The, there's still the, a compressed version of a song that's not the original but Tidal? song. But Tidal? Tidal isn't MP3, is it? Yeah, but, but I'm saying... Higher end. Yes, higher end, period, across everything, so that we don't have to charge a difference for high speed. This should be the way it is, period. I should be able to send you wave files, just period. Diomedes, when's Ericsson gonna come up with technology that <laughs> allows everyone to get high-end audio and video? I, I completely agree with you. I mean, network for Ericsson. And you might tell everyone what yeah. you do. So I'm Diomedes, I'm heading technology for Ericsson in the software business. Um, I have a global role here in uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, and, and for us uh, at Ericsson, we want everybody to a, a experience and enjoy content, right? Mm -hmm. We love when people get the content at the highest value, ubiquitous experience. No matter where you're connected to, whether it's a 5G, a 4G, a 3G, or a 2G, we want to enable techniques that it will make you exploit the content value. And, and we're working very hard against that. The newest technology we're putting for on is 5G. It's all about, you know, lower latency, higher A thousand bandwidth. times the speed, right? Yeah. So well, why don't I have 5G now? I want it now. I bet uh, you want it as well, don't you? Absolutely, but it takes time to develop things. And, and what people don't realize is that R&D takes money and it takes time. And you have to build on what we've done before. So we all know the wish, but people say to me, oh, well, why don't we have this? Well... It takes engineers to sit down and design Don't give them thing. any excuses. We want yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not just a technology problem. I mean, it's yeah. also a business model yeah. problem, yeah. right? So you mean getting people to actually pay for it? Get, get paid for it, embrace it. What is the tomorrow's business model that will embrace that technology and how that technology will proliferate across users? So, you know, technology may, is ready today, right? I mean, we have a lot of, you know, demos and trials and all those kind of things. How do we enable... A, a company that has invested millions and billions of dollars in an existing technology to move up the stock, right? right? And how do we embrace that new wave? 
And what does that mean? People have to start paying for stuff again? Does it mean, you know, Spotify have to raise their prices? No, I don't know if they necessarily have to raise their prices, but in the business model, we have to figure out how that person can still make money. I don't know if it's going to be a, a raise of price. I don't believe that right now this generation even care. This, is, this part of it is a problem. They haven't grown up with high fidelity. This is the Jerome Lanier argument, right? Yeah, they haven't grown up with this high fidelity. So they're used to MP3. So to them, they don't see the advantage of why I need high fidelity. But there's still generations that are coming after that, that they should be able to experience what I experience in the studio uh, without having to trick people, without this, oh, I'm going to take an MP3 and I'm going to give you uh, technology that's going to make it back to a wave. No, it's still not that wave file. We have a couple of gentlemen, one with a nice hairstyle at the front row, who, um, who were trying to solve this problem. Maybe Sean or Darren, you might tell us what you're doing and how what Young Guru is talking about resonates with your product. Sure. So uh, you might uh, my introduce name's Darren your McFadden. I'm from a company called Subpack. And what we do is create uh, tactile audio systems that allow you to feel sound and music. So give you the physical dimension of sound directly to your body. And one of the things that's beautiful about tactile audio is it allows a user to be able to get the same sensation that someone mixing or creating a tune in a studio would have with a very high fidelity and expensive sound system to have that at home with just a pair of headphones. So it comes in two different form factors. We have one that's a seat back that'll just fit behind you. It has to be uh, coupled to your body. And one that's a wearable one. So it's like a low profile backpack. You can put it on, you can uh, sync your phone to it and you can wander around and listen to music. But it gives you this visceral, impactful sense of music that you get with an amazingly tuned sound system in a club, at a festival, or in a beautiful studio. So we're bridging the gap between the content creators and then this generation that have grown up with shitty MP3s, listening them to, uh, and often played through crappy laptop speakers, the worst possible sound you could imagine. These people who labor for hours, weeks, days, and months producing this music. You know, we, and we want people to have the so proper experience. So what about the business model? Who, who's paying for this? For the subpacks themselves, the, con the, the, the users, well, I mean, it's businesses and consumers are using it right now. So you get a lot of kids who just want this fantastic experience. They've only had maybe uh, MP3s and they've been listening to them through low quality speakers. But the moment they feel that sound, the sound that all these kids who are listening to MP3s are experiencing great sound where? Festivals. Clubs, they know what good sound is. Amazing, multi-million dollar sound systems, but they just don't have it at home yet. We want them to have that same physical experience of music, aural and tactile, at home anyway. Guru, I know you know these guys' products. You like them. Is this one of the solutions, just higher quality products that people will pay for? Absolutely, and the fact that it's, it's bringing the studio experience for me home. So democratizing the studio. Everyone now has their own studio. Everyone has their own studio at home. Everyone, even people that don't realize that they have a studio. If you own a computer, you have a studio. But the part of it that we're missing is the room. People don't understand acoustics. So when you walk into the studio, you just assume that it was built that way, you know, to look nice. Uh, but the acoustics of the studio is what made the studio the studio, not just the equipment. So we have a lot of people now who are producing music in square rooms, which is the worst place that you can record or mix music because of standing waves, not to get super technical. But people's bedrooms are the worst place. Those rectangles and squares are killing a lot of the mixes that I get now and have to correct. So what a product like this does is it brings um, that feeling of, of what the huge 20-foot bass wave would be doing in a proper studio to my back.
or to my front or to my feet or to my legs. It's, it's allowing me to feel it throughout my body without having to have 20 inch subwoofers. What does that mean for the artist? Is there going to be a new generation of artists who sort of create, if you like, a, a kind of a tactile art, whether it's music or movies or photography? Absolutely. What I, this is my uh, just observation, but what I found was that when we first moved into the computer, I was like, oh, this is great. I was one of those people that I don't like having a lot of different pieces of equipment. I always wanted one piece of equipment that would allow me to do everything that I wanted to do. So we moved into the computer. I was like, this is great. I can have all of my sounds in there. I can program everything. And then when I first realized I don't like mixing with the mouse, that's not the way we are. We're human beings. We are tactile you know, uh, creatures. I have 10 fingers and I want to be able to touch things and move things at multiple times instead of hitting one parameter, should we say it, with a mouse and just moving in this direction. So the programs themselves have gotten to great levels where you're going to see innovation is the way that we as humans interact with those programs. So what type of keyboards are we using? What type of controllers are we using? That's the, that's the key. Aaron, I couldn't have set you up better, could I? <laughs> you might introduce yourself because you're in the tactile business. Is another guy who's, and, and all the people I'm, in the front row who I'm calling on, they, they all had demos here. If you haven't saw them beforehand, you should mm -hmm. see them after. But, but Aaron, you, you're, you're pioneering a, a tactile music system, right? Yeah, so uh, I'm Aaron Zraga, uh, co-founder of Sensil. Um, <clears throat> Sensil, we're, we're building a device that basically allows you to design your own physical interface. Um, just like uh, what Young Guru was saying is that right now we interact with computers primarily through keyboard and mouse, um, and it's just not good enough. Um, so there's a reason that, you know, um, that mixer boards exist because they make your job easier, they make it more intuitive. Um, there's a reason that all these different devices like pianos, um, MPC controllers, there's a reason that they exist. And so what we're trying to do at Sensil is bring all those physical experiences into one device uh, that kind of does it all. Um, and we're also allowing people um, to design new interfaces. So for content creators, um, they're used to using an interface that someone else designed. Um, we want to put that power in the user's hands so they um, can not only generate new content, but create new interfaces that can create content that we don't even, um, you know. So Aaron, you've got an amazing product. Yeah, everyone should try it if you haven't had the opportunity. But what is still the opportunity for, for the young gurus, the professionals, the engineers, the people whose trade is the creation of sound or video or photography? Well, I think what we're doing is we're kind of liberating those people um, right now. When, you mean when liberating so they don't have jobs? Uh, <laughs> no, we're basically, you know, right now when you, when you sit down at a, at, a, at a piano, right, there's, there's a set of keys and they're laid out in a certain way. Um, but a lot of people, um, when you give them the tools to create a new type of piano, um, it's amazing what people are starting to create. create. So... Um, you know, we're excited to enable people. But to there is still an opportunity for professionals. Can they make money through your, your technology? Yeah, so one of the things we're uh, excited to work with professionals um, to kind of co-brand new interfaces. Um, so if there's a, a musician that's created, you know, a next generation uh, interface for creating new music, um, we want them to be able to share that new design, that new interface through our platform. Um, so I think it'll, um, you know, inspire young, up-and-coming, young, young gurus like you, you talked about. Music, video, photography, is it all sort of melding into the, some general creative medium? I don't know if it's melding into one medium. I think that they've always been a part 
uh, I mean, unless you're talking about silent movies, you know, <laughs> music has always been a part of movies in, in some way of, of transferring emotion. Um, I, I am a musician, so I do feel like music is the highest form of art. Well, you love photography as well. I love photography as well, but without sound, there is nothing. So, and when I say sound, I mean just pure vibration. But there's nothing that can sort of describe my love of photography. It's, it's the uh, opposite spectrum of what I do. I'm so into music and sound that now visually I get to express myself through photography. And what's also important is that I do it from a complete amateur standpoint. And when I say amateur, I don't mean quality. I mean amateur in terms of someone who solely does something Well, you got into love. photography through, uh, through Instagram, right? Absolutely. We've got a very famous professional photographer here, or ex-professional uh, photographer, t uh, Tom Zimbalist. Mm -hmm. Tom, does what Young Guru is talking about in music, does that resonate in photography? I don't know how many, you had 10 covers of Time Magazine, now you have a a photography startup. Are you as optimistic as him about the opportunities for, for professional creatives? I'm very optimistic, but I have a lot of questions. I mean, I'm very interested in the intersection of art and commerce, as you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you were talking about, for example, that you could walk onto a, a basketball court and find a number of players who could play against NBA guys. It's the same thing. It's always been the same thing in any creative thing. And, and the talent you're born with, but you have to work it. Yeah. Uh, you've got to practice. It's the 10,000 hours thing that, uh, what, what's his name? Absolutely uh, believe in that. Gladwell. Thank you, Malcolm Gladwell, yes. Um, but you know, there is something about technology today that raises questions that have to be answered. For example, just because it's virtually free to distribute a photograph on the internet, it doesn't follow that its cultural power and economic value should be trivialized by companies that have a business model of pile them high and sell them cheap. Right. And the same thing happens to be true in music. So what is technology or what are technology companies? Was that, was that a stab at Getty? Was that a stab? <laughs> I didn't say that. I, I said it. I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> she's laughing. That's private joke. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, but you know, what are the technology companies or who are the technology companies that are trying to solve that problem so that artists can make a living in music, for example, from streaming without having to worry about, oh my God, I can't tour anymore, I broke my leg. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 70 years old now. <laughs> what am I gonna do? I have no pension. Uh, these are questions that we have to answer and I wonder what our technology company's doing to answer that instead of exploiting the artists. A quick break from the conversation with Young Guru and Andrew Keen for some recent startup headlines. Microsoft researchers are using Minecraft to train AI systems in general intelligence. The AIX platform aims to teach problem-solving skills by getting systems to do things like climb a hill or avoid lava pits in rivers. The tool is set to be made publicly available later this year. Square has acquired a predictive analytics startup called Framed Data. The terms of the deal are undisclosed. The team of data scientists will join Square Capital, which provides business loans. Frame Data had previously raised $2 million. Uber is set to limit services in Moscow to only officially licensed drivers. It also agreed to share traffic data and number of drivers using the app with city authorities. The company had reportedly been given 90 days to make such changes. This move comes as Uber plans to expand from 7 to 17 Russian cities this year. Let's get back to the discussion. I don't think that technology companies at this point are looking at it from that standpoint. I think that they should, and I think it would be advantageous for whatever artists that we're doing, but this is the reason why 
we need sort of, and this is not a plug for you, but it's, it's, it's saying that your stance on where you're going with your company um, is sort of the way that we, we need to look at it and where we're not just piling on a bunch of stuff and try to sell it for cheap, where we're actually valuing whatever it is that we do. Um, so there's a, a certain amount of charity that I believe needs to be done in, in terms of getting yourself out there uh, because the, the playing field is so flooded and there's so many musicians, so many photographers, and so many things going on, there is a level of charity. When I say charity, I mean there's going to be some things that I need to give away for free as a musician. I need to showcase my talent somewhere. And as part of that charity, your ability to actually, as we were talking about, or you were talking about earlier, to curate some of that talent. To it is. It, it's, it's absolutely being curated, being a filter curating, I, I use it as the same word. But what, I, what I'm also saying is that if you take the model of any musician at this given point, if you just hold all of your good music and say, hey, I'm waiting for people to pay me for this, I doubt that you will be as successful as someone who says, okay, I'm willing to give away this album and this album to gain attention, or what we used to call promo, right? And then you get to a certain point where you say, okay, I'm now going to sell this once I get to a certain level of prominence or enough people know about me. But if, if we just take the complete opposite attitude of saying, I'm never going to give away anything for free. You can say that, but how popular are you going to be? Brad, uh, Brad Templeton, most people here know you. You're a veteran of Futurecast. You teach at Singularity University, one of the pioneers and vision, visionaries of the digital disruption. You're not formally in the creative business, but how does Young Guru's position resonate with you in terms of you know, the, the, the critique of, of, of what the internet has done to the creative industry or the opportunities? Um, well, I did spend 10 years as chairman of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Exactly, so, so you know a little bit about this stuff. Also got um, a little bit of knowledge about that. And speaking of the creative industry, I just a very quick amusing anecdote, which is my mother, when I was born, was a professional jazz and swing singer on national TV. Uh, she gave up her career to have me because she refused to tour when she had children. Did she regret that? Um, well, not to me, she wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like all the people from her era, she thinks all new music is completely trash. And I've played her Adele, and she says, no, that's trash, she's screaming. And uh, I, I finally found one hip-hop song that I played for her, and she said it was trash, but she tapped her toes, and it was Empire State of Mind. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so um, Good. I actually wrote an essay on this topic, uh, oh God, 10 or 15 years ago, about all the different solutions that people have to how you have an economy of creativity. Because a friend of mine, Larry Lessig, started a Creative Commons organization, which has done a lot of great interesting things. But I am interested in the economy of creativity, which is what we're talking about here today. And most of the things that I surveyed were old patronage and advertising and so on. But the new one that's kind of got me a little interested is crowdfunding. We're starting to see a lot of new creative effort funded in advance, um, Indiegogo and uh, Kickstarter to some extent, funding in advance, getting enough to build it and realizing that those true fans that are willing to back you before you're out may be enough. I actually think the real solution is still not seen though. I think that like the uh, theater owner in uh, Shakespeare in Love who's always wondering how we're gonna solve problems, he says, don't worry, it's gonna work out, it's a mystery. But it does in the movie, but in real life, it has always worked out. We've had this problem many times before when the VCR came out, Hollywood sued it and said, my God, we can't have this thing around. And now they'd make far more money from home video than they did from cinematic release. When records came out, when all these technologies came out, it did work out somehow. It's a mystery. 
Can I ask Sorry. a question? Here's the question, and, 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 and this is what's posed to me all the time, is that in the working out, in all these previous things, when we flipped to something new, when our economy went from one economy to another, we still added and value. And that's what's happened. We've had this huge structural shift. Right. We, we're, we're changing, right? And, and we added value to whatever that new thing was. The problem that we see in, in this is that we don't have value for our digital things in the digital age. If, if we're considering those things to be free, then the value is, taking, is taken away from what is actually the commodity in this new system. And I think that's the problem that we run against. And, and I'm not, as, as someone who loves design, I can't just sit here and go, oh, it's going to work itself out. I have to say, okay, I want it to be this way and let's make it this way because we have now some wisdom and we've seen this happen a couple of times. But again, that's not really my argument. That's, that's like an argument that Jared has put up a lot of times that we don't value information in the information age. Yeah, the answer is, is facile for sure, and yet it's always happened, and that's the... Well, there are two is. poles. There's Jerron and there's, there's Lessig. Mm -hmm. But I think at the moment, isn't Jerron's argument winning? I mean, Lessig's doing something else. He's, he's, I don't know he's, if his argument is winning, I mean, but open, open source culture doesn't work, does it? There's no business model. There's no business model for open source culture because we live in America and we <laughs> live where people we live where people are trying to make money off of whatever it is that they do. That's that's why it doesn't necessarily work. But we have great examples of when open source does work and helps make everyone make money, i.e. MIDI. MIDI is considered and for What's MIDI? MIDI is the musical instrument digital interface. It was three guys who worked at three different so, I'm not, I said software companies, three guys that worked at three different keyboard companies at the given time. And, they, and the problem was if I wanted to buy a Yamaha keyboard, I had to buy a Yamaha beat machine and I had to buy, a, everything had to be because the way that they talked to each other was all through Yamaha's communication. So you had three guys that said, hey, look, instead of us saying that this one consumer has to choose between the three of us, why don't we make a language so that all of our technology can talk to each other so then that one consumer can buy a keyboard from all of us. It's an open source. MIDI is not something that these guys designed to sell to anyone. Anyone can put MIDI inside of their keyboards. Matter of fact, we all have MIDI inside of our computers and our phones and everything else. So that was an open source that allowed everyone else to make money. Daryl, you nodded your head when we talked about crowdfunded. I know your company is crowdfunded. Maybe you can say something about that. Can we get Daryl a a microphone, please. Sure. Good evening, everyone. I'm Daryl Lawson, the co-founder and chief marketing officer of Blurp. We're a social network for how we're going to change how we share content on the internet. So crowdfunding, as we all know, social media is the foundation for it. And what our platform does is you can basically search and share YouTube videos, search and share Spotify songs to all of your connected networks at this particular phase. So I know the discussion has been around how artists is going to generate revenue. So I take a page from Ryan Leslie's book. Ryan Leslie created something called the Superphone, which he basically doesn't list his music on iTunes. He doesn't have a label. He has a cell phone, and he texts all of his customers that follow him on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and he delivers content directly to them. So what our platform does is for a new indie artist or a new artist in general trying to build up bucks, 
they can search and share their video that they uploaded to YouTube to all of their connected networks instantaneously all at once to build up their buzz, to build up their following. Same thing with Spotify. So it's no need to like, hey, I got to tap into Twitter, I got to tap into Facebook, I got to tap into Tumblr and go through the middleman. It's like you just push one button, all of your networks can check you out all at once and you can continue to build up. Where's your company? Well, you got funding, you got revenue? Um, we just launched a couple of weeks ago. We're in the process of looking for seed money. We're having some conversations, knocking on some doors right now. Um, and this is relatively a new way of social sharing. Social sharing. We've got, a, we've got Kurt here, another social sharer with Bud to Bud, uh, another startup. Kurt, is social the solution? Yeah, I'm Kurt Bauer. I'm the co-founder of a company called bud to bud and we make an app called Qs, Q-U-S, and we do music aggregation, music service aggregation, and then socialize around that experience. So this is what you're talking about, Daryl, is near, near and dear to my heart, and I think social is really at the heart of it um, because the, the interaction is, you know, that's where, it, you know, you get around this, this label, this monolithic marketing machine of the label, in the old days, they were your bank and your marketing arm and all that sort of stuff. Um, the other thing I think is important in this space is the, is the you know, music right now, the artist is, is paid as though art, their art is a commodity, and it's not a commodity in, in my mind. So I view, I view it as art, and that's not a commodity. So the pricing model to me needs to change, and the whole remuneration process so I'm really interested to apply some technology to this to see if it, it can, um, can help. It seems to me the introduction of MQA is possibly very interesting. What does that and, mean? Well, I'm going to let the expert hopefully tell <laughs> about it. So can you talk about that? And do you think it can be used for deliver, delivery of higher quality content, maybe a higher price? Higher resolution I, delivery. I, I, well, before we even go there, and define I, I, I what just, MQ, I, well, he can he can define it better, probably better than me. But this is this is what I disagree with. I I, I would beg to say that the art is a commodity, um, and that there needs to be some type of of price associated with that art. The price is determined by whatever someone is willing to pay for that. If I have a painting that painting is bought because that person sees the value in the artist, in whatever it is, you know, whatever it connects with them. We have a definitional problem then, because I, I, when I think commodity, I think of pork bellies, you know, something that is, has very little differentiation, one lot to the next. I view a, a painting as absolutely it has market value. Mm -hmm. um, and so if that's what you mean, then okay, I'm just mincing words then at this point. Okay. But, the point is that the price is too low. Um, I think many artists, and you probably have a point of view on this, using, a, using the Spotify business model, which is much discussed, mm -hmm. it's not very rich if you're not a particular kind of artist. Tom, do you agree? Yeah, as a photography guy. Daryl, is, is, are we paying enough for our content online? I think once the artists build up their following, there will be additional revenue opportunities. You know, I think of an artist called Bobby Schmurter, for example. Came out on YouTube got over three million views, got signed. He made $5 million off of ringtones and different revenue streams. So there's different pockets and different ways to make money instead of just out of sales. So yes, artists are getting compensated. 
one stage continues. Where the argument comes in on that end is that that's so few and far between at this point. And what we do is we now see, you know, I'm using everyone else's examples, but we now have no middle class. So it's just like that is... is what do you mean we have no middle class? We used to have a bump. We used to have a middle class. We used to have a guy that could take his guitar and go make a great living off of playing you know, in a local pub somewhere, and that's just not the case anymore. Now we have 10 people who can actually make a living off of what we're explaining and what happens to the other millions of musicians that are out there where we used to have this curve that was like this, this curve is like this, where now if you're not, you know, I'll use my, my genre, if you're not Jay-Z, Rihanna, Beyonce, or one of these top five people, then the amount of money that you're making is, is so low that you, we're talking about uh, being able to send your kids to college, to be able to retire, to make a living off of the music business, not the fireman who has the local band that plays on the weekend. I'm talking about someone who actually makes a living off of making music. This is becoming so few and far. You're a pessimist. Between. No, I'm not a pessimist. I'm looking at well, that's the actual... bad news. No, it's, it's, it's the reality of what's going on. So how do we fix that? Pessimism says there's no way to fix it. What we do is we look at it and analyze it and say, if that's what's going on, how do we address this? How do we get the middleman? How do we get the average guy? There's only one Adele. Out of all of the musicians that make music, there's one person this year who has performed that way. One. But there were always, you know, there was the Rolling Stones, there was Bob Dylan, there were the Beatles. What's changed? Is that we don't have any more uh, of the, the, the middle, I'm trying to think of a great middle group. Uh, Mud Honey is not Nirvana, but they still made a great living. We don't have any more Mud Honeys. You have to either be Kurt Cobain or you're nothing. That's, That's the, the problem. Quest, uh, well, I, I just wanted to call um, on, on Austin because... I'm not sure if you have a solution, but you've got another slant on technology that's kind of intriguing. Yeah, so my name is Austin Teams. I'm the head of product management for, for Listener, uh, L-I-S-N-R. And um, what we do is we send, let's see how nerdy I can get, we send data through sound waves, through modulating and demodulating sound waves. So they're inaudible tones. And when I mean by a tone, it's really just a wave file, an MP3 file. So the human ear, it's just above that threshold um, that the human ear can't hear, but any device with a microphone can listen to that tone and pull out the data of that tone. Why should we care about that? Well, I think that there's a tremendous problem in delivering content today. So um, we so work- So it's a technology problem in terms of delivery? I, I think so. Um, we have, there's loads of content, right? But how many of us have been at a concert or an event with 50,000 people all on one cell tower and you can't even send a text message? Um, it's a tremendous problem. Um, and so we've solved this through sending data through a sound wave. If I'm at a large event, and, and we kind of, <laughs> we melded this new technology of modulating and demodulating uh, uh, tones, which is similar to, you know, kind of how Wi-Fi works and other, other technologies. Um, and we married that with old technology, and that is a speaker. A speaker's been around forever, uh, for not a long time, ever in, in, in my age. I'm relatively young, I guess, compared to the speaker. Um, but we use this old technology of a speaker um, and married that with new technology of embedding these inaudible tones to actually deliver data. And so now you, I, I go to a stadium, and if I were to say, hey, I'm a, a vendor selling uh, Bluetooth low energy to you, and you're, I want you to set up beacons at that stadium. They say, okay, great. How many beacons do I need? I need you know, 
300 or so hardware devices to place all over the stadium. As listener, I can go to that stadium, and this, is, this, this has happened, and I say, um, in about an hour, let me plug into your sound device and I can get 92% of your stadium to Guru, you, deliver you, data. if you put your finger on a big problem, the disappearance mm -hmm. of the musical middle class, maybe Austin's solution is real or not. But it, can I believe it is. But can technology solve this problem? Can technology yes. re-empower the creative middle class? Yeah, what, what, we're, what that technology specifically that we're talking about is great is because of the fact that we have third-party uh, instances on the on the internet or should I say okay let's say this person makes a song uh, it's streamed by whatever streaming service and they get the revenue from that but what's to stop me as the consumer from ripping that and then putting that somewhere else and then the person doesn't get paid from that what this technology allows you to do is sort of watermark your music without someone being able to take it off is that right so, yeah I mean there's there, there are so many applications okay. right so that now I can get paid wherever my song is playing, regardless to you know, what the service was, I can still track my song. That's a big problem for us, is that we may get paid from it once, but then it gets ripped and it gets used by, something, by someone else. So you're not a pessimist, you're an optimist. You think technology can solve I've been trying to tell you that for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Lance. Hi, um, my name is Lance Coleman. Um, I kind of want to make a uh, Who are you with, Lance? What do you do? Um, I work in the music industry. Okay. Uh, is that still a music industry? I heard there wasn't one. Well, I, 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 don't, I actually don't believe that like the differentiations of, of industries will probably last much longer than anything. Everything's tech industry. Um, it's just those who haven't caught up to it yet. Um, but my question is kind of around, um, I know you were instrumental in the Rockefeller era. And I want to touch on a maybe sensitive subject. And what does that mean, the Rockefeller? Yeah. So Rockefeller is like one of the greatest dynasties that ever existed in hip-hop. Um, it spawned Jay-Z and a number of really big uh, hip-hop artists. But in that era, Jay-Z was feuding with an artist named Nas. And there was a record that came out called Ether, which within, I think within 24 hours, was responded with Super Ugly. And then uh, later on with Takeover. So my, my question, um, kind of a uh, little irrelevant to the backstory, is Drake and Meek Mill, they're beefing now, and they both released disc records um, to you know, talk about their beef. And I want to know from your opinion, how has the dynamic changed um, with technology around uh, rap beef records? Mm -hmm. um, and do they, and is, is, it, is it helped by memes? Is it assisted? Uh, by the fast pace that things can be exchanged now. I, re I remember at the time um, when, when Jay-Z responded so fast, it was like an incredible thing. It was an incredible feat that he had responded to this rap record so, so fast. Can but you then, translate this so that I understand yeah. this? Sorry. <laughs> where we, where we pull all of this together is, is the way in which technology has allowed people to speed up what they do. Um, and in hip-hop, the competition is a huge thing. Sometimes more than the quality of your album uh, or the quality of songs that you're putting out, your public perception is what will drive your sales. Who are you? And a lot of times in our music, your popularity can be taken down very easily by the wrong move. What he's referring to is the speed at which 
we used to do that when we call these rap battles. They add on to your credibility. So it's like a Twitter battle. Okay? No, it's, it's very much different. <laughs> but we, now that we're in this sort of, uh, now that we're in the Twitter age, we have this new generation displaying these battles, not only through music, but through social media. I thank God that when I was going through my battle, that there were no memes. Because <laughs> this is, you, have to be, you have to be almost in as intelligent and clever with the memes as you have to be with the music. So does it help, or do, I guess your question is, does it help or does it hurt, or how has it changed? I don't really understand the nature of your question. Well, I didn't quite get to the, okay. the question. <laughs> I was trying to get background. So, well, my question is, um, like, as a business-wise, how has this affected the business dynamics around rap beef records? Because it used to be a, where, where artists like 50 Cent can make a whole career, or at least a trajectory of one, off of beef records. But now, like, beef comes and goes in three hours. If you weren't on Twitter at that time, you missed the whole thing. Right. But it also takes it to an elevation where it's reaching people in Paraguay with, you know, Twitter to text uh, mobile. So my question is, do you think it has improved business-wise or hurt business-wise the, the financials around rap uh, competition? I think it hurts to a certain degree because I think it cheapens what it is. And I think it cheapens the sport of the actual battle. And I think it has people, again, um, paying attention to things that are not musical things. It has to do with how your presentation is versus what the actual music is and what the content is, if, if that answers your question. So I don't know if people are really concentrating on what the best songs are. They're more concentrating on the wow factor of how that song was delivered. But if you're going to play the game, you're going to play the game, and that's part of the rules or what the crowd is giving as the rules nowadays. Questions, and I, I feel, I don't usually do this, but I feel that only men have spoken so far, so I want to give some women some, some opportunity. <laughs> There's a lady next to this guy, next to Lance. Sierra, do you want to? Yeah, sure. My name is Sierra Jewel. I'm a designer at Maven. Um, graphic designer, UI, hacker, hip-hopper. Um, on a way to see Snoop Dogg after this. But um, I just want to know your thoughts on podcasts and have you thought about um, um, doing what? anything in that? Uh, podcast, she said. Podcast. Oh, podcast. Yeah, because you're an audio engineer and audio is very important in that industry. Um, you're, you know, you're a, a genius in, the, in that capacity. What, what are your thoughts in that space? I don't know if I believe in that word genius, but um, especially not for me, but. Well, you have talent. That's the guy who gets your check support on your iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love the idea of podcasts. I love, you know, the, the people that are good at doing podcasts um, are, I find, to be sort of the people that are, are seasoned in whatever it is that they're doing. I like, I like those people. There's, like anything else, there's a lot of people doing podcasts that I don't listen to because I don't think they're experts or they're even interesting in what, in what they're saying. But for me personally, for music engineering, it's bigger than a podcast, which is the reason why I do certain things like Skillshare classes so that you can visually see what I'm doing and it's not, you're not just listening to me um, because there's certain things that you need to see exactly how I'm doing those things. So you can talk about audio all you want, but actually hearing what I'm doing when you see the change or you see my screen, um, when I'm trying to explain a concept, I think it's way more effective than me just talking about it on a podcast. And I do way too much stuff to have a podcast going every week. But podcasts, I mean, Sierra, either of you, I mean, the quality of podcasts have nothing to do with its technology. It's content, isn't it? Someone's either good at them or not. 
some like Tim Ferriss or then. Who are your favorite uh, podcasters? Well, I like uh, I like Tim Ferriss, but I also like Ferris. Tim Ferriss. Yeah. So it depends. It depends on what you go for. But I'm saying there's some that develop stories, and then it makes you sound like you're actually in that story with them. You're going to do these things with that character. So I mean the. The quality of sound matters in that capacity, but if it's a content where they're teaching you how to do something, then maybe you know those sounds are not. So it's really about talent. Someone like Tim Ferriss is particularly talented, right? He's not the only person on the show. Right. Do you listen to podcasts? Very rarely. Um, probably the biggest one that I listen to is Rap Radar podcast, just simply because <clears throat> I know those guys and I'm interested in that. Um, I'm not a big podcast person. I like to sort of watch interviews and visually see the person. And I don't know, it's just not something that I'm completely into. Question. Um, Jesse Fellerhan with Meaning of the Minds. Um, I want to push back a little bit on back on this conversation we had with Subpack and um, that there's actually demand for higher quality sound and consumption of music and art in this country. Because with the defending of arts education, um, and music education, I think um, there's, I'm one generation, there's another generation coming up that were never educated in that space. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't have a lot of hope, you could call me a pessimist, Andrew, that we have two generations um, growing up who, you know, there's Broadway musicals that have all recorded music now. There's no demand even for live orchestra music in this country. So any, any comments on that? Well, I, I think when you introduce people to something, you have to accept if they don't like it. And it's not, and, and what's our definition of fine art? It's a big thing for me. What, what previous generations would consider fine art may not be fine art to me. But I think my point was on the fidelity of music. My point was that we're gonna to get to a point, we, we, now that I know we're gonna to get to, we're gonna to get to a point where it's fast enough where I can give you high fidelity music. So it's just my point that, I would like you to hear my song the way that I intended it to be heard, not a version of it where you chop off all the bottom and chop up all the, all the bass and, and reduce it to less bits than it actually was. I'm already converting it to a digital signal, which is, which is to a certain extent harming the music because it's not a continuous stream. There's zeros and ones. And well, there's an, infinite, there's an infinite amount of space between zero and one. You don't have to be educated to know the difference between MP3 and vinyl, right? You just got to listen. Well, it's not even just vinyl. It's just, it's, just, it's just continuous music. If I make music zeros and ones, then there's always going to be a space between the zero and the one. An infinite amount of space. Which means that you're not listening to a continuous signal. You're not listening to what I created. You're listening to a copy of what I created, and, and a really bad copy at that. So it's just, I want you to listen to the music the way I intended you to listen to it. Now, whether or not we have the argument on what is fine art is determined by whoever the user is. There's some Picasso stuff that I think is not fine art, but people would argue me all day. I took my daughter to go see Picasso, and it was like, okay, this guy has a, a, like a woman's head with a man's penis on top of it. And I'm like, that's not really fine art. But I could see to someone that grew up in an area where the body is restricted and it's looked at as something negative, how that could be an expression. And then that can be considered fine art, right? The whole cubist movement to me 
there's a lot of people in there that just splatter red on the thing and it's just like, okay, this is the red thing and the idea behind it is way better than the actual, this is just red on canvas. But I know the idea behind it. Is that fine art or is it not? It depends on who you are. That's all. So it's, it's, it's what we want. I'm talking about strictly the fidelity of music. Can I give you what I intended through this medium? And I used, we used to do that all the time, and now we don't. Jen, you work, uh, you're, you're at Adobe, which is a company, I think would be fair to say, you provide high-quality technology for the creation of content. Is that fair? That is fair, but I actually, and we can't, can't get back to that point, but I had a question. Mm -hmm. And I think a question is very relevant. So I am a data scientist and behavioral economist. I'm interested in two things, data and people. And uh, you made me, your comment on commoditization of talent, a brilliant point, got me thinking. So we are living in a new world in which digital things, money, likes on Facebook, photos, music, uh, popularity is not distributed equally. Mm -hmm. Like it's not distributed normally. Uh, we cannot change that. Uh, but we can change uh, human behavior and we can get people to enjoy start paying for music and for digital content. And so yes, we will always have the world in which we have superstars and we have people who have way less popularity. Right. But we can live to the baseline of how wealthy those people who have way less popularity are. So what, do you have any thoughts on how to make people enjoy paying for content? Yeah, I, I think that when we place the value on it, when, when us as a society, we determine the things that we want. So when we place a value on it that says, okay, well, I'm trying to think of an example in, in, in something else where people gladly pay for something so that they can get the true experience. Uh, but I, I, I will tell you, I'm sorry? Well, that's a physical thing that you kind of can't get unless you do pay for it. So it's, 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 it's different if I just say, oh, to me the equivalent is like, oh, instead of you going to Hawaii, I'm going to put a picture of Hawaii on the television. That's not the same as you going to Hawaii. Bottled water. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, we, we, we see that as, as a commodity, but that's coming from a standpoint of saying, okay, well, we don't want all of the garbage that's in just regular tap water. We want pure water. No, I know we, we make people do that. that. I'm saying the mentality behind why someone would pay for that. And that also depends on where you live. Don't try that in Newark, New Jersey. Um, <laughs> no, but there's a difference between... But to address, to address your question, that's a big thing. I don't know if I have the answer to how to change social behavior because we have a generation of children that are so used to not paying for their entertainment, not just music, but just entertainment in general. The only place that they are willing to pay for it is in a live venue. But they'll pay for t-shirts. Yeah, they'll, they'll pay for t-shirts, but that's not the, the actual musical experience. But why do they pay for t-shirts and not the music? Because it's a physical thing. They still see fashion as something that is something that they should pay for. Un until, 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 years from now, we're, where we're going to have t-shirts that are printed and then the fashion business is going to go through this same thing. All businesses are going to go through this same thing. I don't care who you are. When we have uh, automated cars, then we're going to knock out all the cab drivers in New York City, and we're going to have a major, major uh, problem at that point because the entry level, again, we're going to be knocking out the middle class. We're going to be knocking out those people that have entry-level jobs. This is going to hit 
everything. When we have doctors that we can have the watch on and the watch is going to be able to tell us some of the basic things, then only the specialist doctors are going to be necessary. This is going to hit everybody. It just hit us first. That's it. So I, the point is, is, is to try to figure this out with us first so that we can avoid this with the rest of business. But you're not going to stop 3D printing. 3D printing is here. Gentlemen at the back. Hey, my name is Noah Friedman. I'm a software developer. And I'm glad you asked this question right before. And you're before. with Google, right? Uh, no, I've got my own business. Oh, your brother's with Google, right? Oh, yeah, brother. <laughs> so I think another model that is different than everything else is when Radiohead released their album for free online. They made it so anyone could download it. I forget the name of which album they did. And you could pay as much or as little as you want. All I right. could have downloaded the full quality album for $0. I chose to give them $5 because I thought it was a really cool thing to do. So can we appeal to people's altruism by having a different model and saying, we're going to give yeah. it to you free, donate what you want. And the, I think the, the fact that people used to pay $20 for CDs and aren't anymore just goes to the fact that record industries aren't really monetizing on how valuable music is to people. Well, number one, there's two, there's two arguments that I can make against that. Number one is you're talking about Radiohead, someone who's already popular. How does this, how can we do that if I'm the non-popular person? I, I, I can't even get enough people on my site to even make a difference, number one. And then number two is that Whenever I'm given an option of free or pay, I always choose free. This is me. Yeah, that's just me. I don't think, I don't think in, in, the, in anything that I do, if someone gives me an option, I have to really, 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 really love you. I, I consider me, that paying for something because I paid for good service. And I'm one of those people that if you don't give me good service, you will not get a tip. How did that radio, but, but let, hold on, how did that radio head experiment work out in economic terms? I don't know the exact number, but it worked out great for them. But I make the argument again that great it's radio for, head. For, for radio head? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great for them. I, I don't know the specific number, but it worked out great for them. It was a great marketing thing for them. But they're already famous is the problem. Mm. That's the problem. Jay-Z could do that. Beyonce can drop an album one day ahead of, or, or with no promotion whatsoever and say, hey, my album's out. Uh, the average person cannot do that. Noah, you agree? And, and, and I, I, I also, I also want to add this. Let's say Spotify, mm -hmm. there's a donate button. I'm paying $10 a month for music. I'd be willing to pay $30 a month for music. So that's a market failure, right? Why would you be paying 30 What do you mean? We need more use, number one, but then number number no no but number two there's there's also holes there's also holes in that. That's like okay, if I'm a DJ and I, I pay $30 for Spotify, and then I, and I can't own that song and play that song out to people. I can't take, I'm not talking about taking my Spotify playlist and playing that at a club. I'm talking about individual tracks that I've already, I feel like I've paid for them now. I can't take those tracks and, and use them in my Serato or whatever. You know, I don't want to just be on one company, but whatever format you DJ with, right? That was my problem with iTunes, with where you only have like when they had the little uh, you can only play it in five different places. And I'm like, well, hey, I play in more than five places across the world and I've paid for this track. 
there becomes a problem with that, where I can't utilize that outside of the service, and I, I hope, paid for it. I hope you're all going to, by the way, donate to, to Young Guru for, for the wisdom tonight. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to question, final question. Well, maybe one more after you. I don't want to be the last one. But, uh, my name is Adonis. Thank you so much for YouTube, your YouTube videos. Thank you. I'm a DJ producer. And uh, um, my question is a two-for-one special. <laughs> they correlate to, with each other. Um, so who would have thought that people back then would you know, hire uh, cover bands, cover uh, musicians who would cover songs, right, for any event. But nowadays, a lot of people would, see, uh, would go visit superstar DJs, right? Mm -hmm. So my question is, what's after a superstar DJ and will Shazam or any uh, radio player replace a DJ for like wedding events or any type very, of event? That's a very good question. I, I, what do you mean what's after the superstar DJ? Like what's the I mean, next big thing? So like, you the, guys are like, oh, give me all the ideas so I can make millions of dollars when you leave it? <laughs> no, but seriously, what do you mean? Like what's the next idea in terms of superstar DJ? Yeah, because, uh, I mean, the rise of the... Well, what, what's, what's, it, let's, let's be specific in terms of, of what you're saying, and I'm very critical of this superstar DJ thing, right? Again, because everyone now has the ability uh, or the access to the equipment um, yeah. and the ability to call themselves something, just because you get a camera does not make you a photographer, right? Or not a good one. So these people that are superstar DJs, they're DJs, but they're not really that good. They don't have the, the skill that most DJs have. What their draw is, is that they're superstars. And I've had promoters tell me, they're like, I don't care how good the person is, right? I don't care if, um, I'm trying to think of someone who's really popular, who, uh, Perez Hilton, Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton's a DJ. I know she gets paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to Ibiza and play. Yeah. She can't DJ. <laughs> But the whole idea is that she's the draw, right? So, so in, in the promoter's mind, he's saying, my job is to put people in the club and for them to buy alcohol from the bar. He's not really concerned with, is she true to turntablism? He's not thinking about that. He's thinking, what's the best way for me to get the most amount of people into my club and for them to spend money at the bar? So in terms of like superstar DJ, I don't, I don't know what that means. So if you can get some way that Spotify and these streaming services are more important as a draw than somebody else, but I don't know if they're going to become superstars in that way. It's well, I mean, what I mean by that, because the rise of the EDM movement, right? Mm -hmm. After what? The EDM. EDM. Dance music movement. Uh. The fact that it's just a big hit right now, that I don't know if from hip-hop, from how strong hip-hop is, and, you know... EDM is not going to last as long because EDM is not a real... It's not a real thing. What EDM is is people, promoters, wanting to put a whole bunch of stuff together so that they can sell it as one package. If you say electronic dance music, that's pretty much everything since the 80s. <laughs> Final question. <laughs> Think about dance music that has electronic stuff in it. It's everything since the 80s. Do you think Shazam would replace a DJ in any wedding events? And what a DJ or lifetime is? I don't, know if it, I don't know if Shazam itself would, but what I could see is, is one DJ being streamed to multiple things so that people in different countries can all feel this same experience so that that, that. 
that night when I would have employed 10 DJs, there's one DJ and we're all having this experience and all I, at the same time. I didn't time. think people still had marriages, did they? <laughs> I mean, final question. Okay. Um, a little different than technology or the art and the music. So my background, I started a record company, record label in 1990, thinking the news groups are a good place to market. I wasn't even thinking delivering digital. Mm -hmm. 94, we went on the internet, $50, got a website, X.25, which was the father of internet. Right. So we got a website up there and it was great. We got the music out there invested in the music and the money, produced a lot of records, and then Sean Parker started Napster. In one day, I watched 50,000 downloads of my, one of my records that I spent $50,000 producing. Yeah. I said, this is the end. Yeah. So I pulled back, did some more. 97, I kind of started going slow. One of the biggest things that ever happened in digital music history was DMCA. I didn't think... Did we talk about you said it was the what? DMCA. Okay. Digital Millennium Copyright mm -hmm. Act. Mm -hmm. The most important thing that ever happened to music in digital music was because it was the wild, wild west before that. Yeah. And we cried, we screamed, nobody cared. The DJ, the, the, the DA didn't care. Somebody's downloading the music stealing. So, question. Question. How do you, okay, now, with DMCA, a lot of things worked out, and we have a pretty good environment right now. Are we thinking that the legal part of the digital music is there yet, or is there some more improvement needs to be done to it? You just talked a little bit about the watermarking, the first download, but not beyond that. Good question. So, so is piracy still a big problem? What is, what yeah, is how do we see the legal part of the Piracy is still a right huge now. problem. I don't know if legally if we're all the way there, but here's what people miss is that, yeah, you can have whatever code you want on any form of music. There's nothing to say that I can't take my left and my right, that little red and that little white, and plug that into an input, and now I record a new version of it that is minus all whatever, whatever it is. If I love the music, I'm going to have a way to copy the music without all of the uh, digital protection that's on it. It's very easy to do. So I don't know if that's the solution is to add more things into the code of what the music is. We can already track music. We can already tell when it's played, where it's played, how many times. How about the instruments? If the instruments have intelligence not to pay something that is illegal, is it possible? You said if it's, I'm, I'm, I couldn't hear you. Instruments, like if your, if your Wi-Fi machine or your iPhone or whatever does not play something that is illegal, and it, it'll probably take you about two hours to crack it. Maybe Ericsson, Dwight, maybe you can come up with that solution. No, as soon as, soon, as, soon as you do that, someone's going to crack it. Uh, can, can Ericsson, re, uh, Dwight, can Ericsson rewire our brains? I, I'm not answering that. <laughs> uh, that's maybe a good, uh, Diomedes, maybe I'll give that one to you later. Um, I'm Dwight Witherspoon. Um, uh, thank you very much to our, I see some groupies, Ericsson, Futurecast groupies out there. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of this event along with AT&T Foundry and Andrew. So I've seen everyone. Um, we've had in this chair the leading venture capitalist, journalist, technologist, even politicians a year ago. All of them talking about out-of-the-box thinking, but I, I think this tonight, this was really from somebody who's out of the box. I mean, and I, everybody back here said the, the same thing. So 
Thank you very much, Guru, Thank for you. bringing that truly tonight. We, we've had great people. And you I appreciate it. Thank you. It was, was awesome. Um,